We've been talking about Union with Christ, a series that we've called Resolutions for Rootedness, this idea that we are rooted in Christ himself who has defeated death, who is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father, where we are to set our minds. This is a new reality for our lives that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We are in Christ. He is in us. We've talked for the last five weeks about different aspects of that, and today, in the last sermon in this series, before we get into the Lenten season, we're going to talk about this concept of laboring to be brought near. Laboring to be brought near. It's a concept I got from my friend Rankin Wilburn in his book, Union with Christ, and it is supposed to be fairly paradoxical. How do you labor or work towards, which is an active verb if you're not good at grammar, something that's passive like being brought near? It's a call and a summons to us that recognizes <clears throat> that if we are one with Christ, it's one thing to be one with him. It's another to appreciate that oneness, to enjoy that oneness, to live as if that oneness is true, just like if you happen to be a married person. If you are a married person, you are married. That's probably a good enough reminder right there. You said vows, you're married. But you don't always feel married, maybe. And you certainly don't always feel appreciated or known by your spouse. You may feel more or less close to your spouse. And so much of that has to do with your action and their action. Your responses to one another. Do you spend time together? Do you listen to each other? Do you praise each other? Do you value each other? Do you, are you trying to do too much in the world and have no attention for the other. This happens in friendship. This happens with children. You will not enjoy the realities that you're in if you don't give some attention to them. And so the call, labor to be brought near, is heard throughout the scriptures. And it's the, the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of walking with God, because it involves two different things that seem contradictory. If you've had a good writing teacher at some point, they will encourage you to use the active voice. Don't say the ice cream was eaten. Say you ate the ice cream. The song was not sung. That's passive. We sang the songs. Active. You get it? I should be your English teacher. Then you would like it. Throughout the Bible, you have these enjoinders. For everyone who believes, or everyone who seeks God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Active. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to Him. And to exilic Jews in Babylon who wonder if God is done with them. He makes a promise. 
should you begin to orient your life around me, you're going to be pleasantly surprised to find me. You'll seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. It's active. You hear the Apostle Paul saying, I want to know Christ. And then later saying, not that I've achieved all this or already attained it, but one thing I do is forgetting what's behind and pressing on. I strain towards the goal for which Christ has called me heavenward. I strain. That's active. But at the same time, you can misunderstand this active call. Which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But what the call is for is that you might actually be able to appreciate your union with Christ. This is the reality of your life. And if you should give attention to it, Jesus says, if you ask, you'll be answered. If you seek, the door will be, oh, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. If you give attention to this concept that I am one with Christ, Christ is in me, I'm going to seek to make what's true that God says about me true in my actuality, true in the way I practice my sport in the afternoon, true in the way I go about my work in the morning, true in the way I conduct my affairs financially or familially. You're trying to move from union to communion. Trying to make what's said to be true about you in your marriage to experience the wealth and wonder of this marriage with Christ. Francis Schaeffer called it possessing your possessions. It's a great way of thinking about it. When I was a young boy, I was attacked by a German shepherd. He broke all his teeth when he bit me. (laughs) I wish. I was on an Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Walton where my aunt and uncle lived, and I was riding my bike smartly through someone else's backyard. There was water back there. I was going to a pond, and a German shepherd came out of nowhere on my back, and he got me, took my leg, knocked me off my bike. Fortunately, he was on a run, so I could get beyond his reach and just be terrified by him with a bite in my leg. From that day forward, dogs made me nervous. Scary creatures they are. Worse than cats, maybe. Until one day something happened. I don't know how or why. It may have been a series of events. But one day, you know what happened? I realized something. I'm actually quite a large man. And I'm actually, in a lot of situations, I, athletically, I learned to be very aggressive. Sorry. <clears throat> but I realized those dogs that come at me are small. They are much smaller than I am. They're much weaker than I am. And I am large. Now, some of you are little ladies, so you need to carry something to hit a dog with. Or shoot it. Or spray it. But I'm not a little lady. I'm an oversized man. And I realized, you know what I can do when a dog comes up to me and he goes, rah, rah, rah. You know what I can do? I can growl back at him. I can bow up at him. Because I'm bigger than he is. I can possess my possessions. I can be who I am. And so a dog comes at me and goes, and I go, no! And he cries. 
And so does everybody around me that got startled by it. I've realized I have a loud voice. I have a big body. I'm going to use it to protect myself against the dog. I will not fear it. Possessing my possessions. I'm living out who I am. And Paul says that Christ lives in you. And his life now is Christ. And so he wants to know Christ. And he wants to live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's going to live out this life of another being in him, producing fruit through him. He's wanting his life to be oriented around the things that are important to Jesus. Valuable to Jesus. And so if you find yourself allured in any way, by this desire of, I want to know God, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, for whose sake I've lost all things. It's so fantastic. I can't stand it how good it is, says Paul. If that's aspirational to you, then the call here for you is to say, okay, labor to be brought near to this reality. Labor to possess your possessions. Give attention. Reorient your life so that you can not be afraid anymore. So that you can live with the confidence of Christ in you, for you, with you. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm straining toward what is ahead. I press on. He is active towards the God who is calling him. But at the same time, there is a passivity here, which is actually a comfort. It's a passivity underneath our action that makes our action meaningful. And it's very important when you hear the labor to be brought near, to understand that God is the one who makes you able to want to be near him. Says C.S. Lewis to Sheldon Van Aken when he was writing him in his story, A Severe Mercy, about these intimations and desires and questions about God. And he says, proceed in earnest. You would not be wanting him if he were not first wanting you. This is expanding on the notion that we didn't love God first. He loved us. I didn't choose Christ says Peter or James or John or any of the apostles. Jesus said, I chose you. And Paul says it even goes back beyond history. You were chosen out of the good pleasure of God before the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of his son. It made him happy to think, I'm going to pick people who would never pick me. And so when you're called to labor to draw near, when you're called to come to appreciate this union with Christ, you're realizing that God has acted in the first place to make your action meaningful. And so Paul can say things also like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Action. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's acting on you when you think you're acting. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. You're going to be acted upon. We're laboring to be drawn near. We're laboring to, therefore, possess 
our possessions. We want to know what is true about us. We want to live out what God has said is the case in our case. Now, of course, to do this, you have to answer a certain question. Rankin also draws this to our attention, and I think it's very important because I think back. Maybe some of you can identify with this. When I was a young boy, and I st- a teenager now, a teenager, and I started to become interested in Christ. I had made a profession of faith. I was living as a Christian. I wanted to be identified as a Christian. And someone told me wisely, I needed to have a quiet time every day. What's a quiet time? Well, you need to pray, and I need to read the Bible, for instance. I need to be with other believers. There are these things I needed to do. And so I am a guy who, who grabs hold of rules. Very easily. Like hitchhikers walking through the woods. <clears throat> These little things that cling to you. That's how rules are with me. And so I thought, okay, I need to have a quiet time. So I knew this is what I need to do. I need to do this every day. But you know what I did? I had a fundamental misstep. I got to thinking if I... If I draw near to God, if I read the Bible, if I pray, then probably I'm going to hit a home run tonight in the game. And I can count on scoring more points in the basketball game, and I'll probably get an A on the calculus test. Oh, but if I had to study that morning, and I didn't have time, or I didn't feel like it, or I was too rushed, or I got up too late, and I didn't have a quiet time, ah, it was almost like a wasted day. I was going out uncovered. I like had a bullseye on me for trouble. My car was probably going to break down. I was probably going to forget all the Spanish I had ever learned. (laughs) Zits were going to pop up all over. It wasn't quite as pronounced as that, but it was a little bit like that. If I move towards God, he'll like me. If I don't give him attention, watch out. Now, if you think like that, Here's what's going to happen. Every time we talk here about giving, or serving your neighbor, or caring for the poor, or participating in the Bible reading plan, or being in the Pray For Me campaign and praying for your students, or when we call you to prayer, we call you to worship, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get weary. You're going to be like a mom in the front seat that kids are just handing her things. You know that feeling? Here, Mom, here's all my trash. Here's all my stuff. Because moms are what? Trash compactors? I don't know. But kids just hand them things from the back seat. And you're just going to be collecting things. And you're going to start to crumple. The call to labor is going to feel, well, laborious. Like a bunch of new chores that have been assigned to you that you'd rather not do. If you think, I'm doing this, and you don't know why you're doing it, or you're doing it because you want to keep God off your back, let me urge you, don't do it. Instead, spend some time with this question. Do you want to be brought near? Do you want to respond to the invitation that you might have life and life to the full? That you might have rest for your soul? that you might know restoration, that you might know what you're for? Do you want to respond to the invitation that God would draw near to you? 
Because until you answer that question, all the other activities of the Christian life just feel onerous. That means hard. They feel agitating. They feel like a heaping up. They feel like a to-do list that never gets any progress made on it. I think I started out thinking of my quiet times kind of like that. But I got to a point. At some point, I just quit having quiet times. I was like, Bleh. I had a professor, Steve Brown, that would tell people, they'd say, I'm going to run away from God. He'd go, I think you need to. Something like that. He was confident that God was really good. That they needed to discover that it wasn't their goodness that was keeping him in the relationship. And you know what's happened to me? I hope it happens to you. I hope most of you already know this phenomenon. Now, I have a bad case of FOMO. Fear missing out. But it's not about being at your party on Instagram, because I'm not on Instagram, so I don't, I don't get to torture myself that way. But if I did, I would be very tortured and surprised at how much better your life was than mine and how much more colorful on this dreary day. But I've started to realize, you know what? You know why I pray? Because I want God. Because when I wake up in the morning, you know what happens to me? It may not happen to you. I wake up in the morning and I think, I don't want it to be today. That's how a lot of mornings start. But that's, that's fortunate. Like, say, if you're a preacher and you're like supposed to be on on Sundays and you wake up on a Sunday and you hardly slept. I don't know. And you hadn't been feeling good. Just hypothetically. And you're saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't feel like doing this. You wake up in the morning, John Piper helpfully said in one very graphic image, I feel like when I wake up in the morning, Satan is sitting on my face. And you wonder, is all this true? Can I do it? Is God there? Are there resources? Ah. They are new every morning. You're like, no, they're not. Those mercies, where are they? I don't see no mercies. Well, you got to labor to be brought near to the mercies sometimes. They don't, just, they don't just light on you like you're in a Disney movie and the dew has fallen on your eyelids and you wake up and suddenly sunny skies. A lot of you wake up and some of you wake up like that. Congratulations. I'm serious. Some of you do. I don't like you, but you do. I've always envied the people who wake up in the morning so glad about it. I said a mean thing to my mom going to school as a teenage boy who was excited in the morning. She was excited in the morning, so she would talk to me like a, you know, like a wicked woman. And I said, Mom, do you think you could just not talk to me in the mornings? That's all. Your eldest son... I know you're trying to have a relationship and everything, but if you could just not. (laughs) Things were not well with me in the morning. I've gotten better. But I have to fight. I have to labor to be brought near. I have to labor to to, to get to the scriptures because I have a fear of missing out. Of missing out on, on getting refilled up with the reality. Knowing that God has caused me to hunger that I might be fed by him. That's the passive part. I've caused you to hunger that I might feed you. And so I have a fear of missing out now. Not that God's going to get me. I think God likes me whether I do the quiet time or not. 
whether I have prayer time or not, I think, where am I going to get power? Where am I going to get reoriented? How am I going to start to see the universe right again if I don't give myself to the scriptures and start to familiarize myself with the most real world? Sean Hannity can't help me with that. And neither can hardball with Chris, whoever. So laboring to be brought near, if you've made a decision like, I want to be near to Christ. I want more of him in my life. I want, I want to be spent by him. I want, to, I want to have joy, and I've got to find a way to dispel the gloomy clouds that hover on me and threaten to suffocate me. So I labor, but it turns out that my labor was all just a, an invitation. No one can come to the Father Unless the Father draws him, says Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So today when you hear me say, labor to be brought near, don't you dare hear me say, go read your Bible or else. Because you're hearing it wrong. Don't you dare hear me say, pray, and your transmission won't go out. It probably will go out, especially if it's in Acadia. That's an old joke now. We got rid of it. (laughs) Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Got a new lease on life. But we're laboring to be brought near to him who wants to give us something. C.S. Lewis tells this great story about his wife. They were married a short time. He said, one day I was running around the house cleaning and doing chores and whatnot. And I have this sense, this overwhelming sense, this kind of check in my spirit. And I realize that Presbyterians don't talk like that, and I didn't think Anglicans did either. But I felt like God was saying, I need you to pause. I I want something from you. I I need you to stop. She felt this sense. You maybe have felt that before, like, ah, I need to to stop what I'm doing. But she put it off, you know, because she thought, well, he's going to ask me to go to Tanzania and join Becca. I don't want to do that. I'd rather get the dishes done. He's going to ask something of me. He's going to be onerous to me. There's that word again. He's going to be difficult. He's going to assign me something that's not pleasant. And so she kept going about her business, but this need persisted to stop and listen to God. And she said when she did, she heard from God that something more like, I don't want to demand anything of you. I have something to give to you. And then in that moment, she entered into joy. I think if you start to realize that union with Christ is true, that the delight, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, that comes to his son from the Father, comes to you by virtue of your connection to him. And it was love that put that connection in place. And so when God urges you to hang out in the neighborhoods where he's promised to show up, like the scriptures, or like prayer, or like here when we worship, or like in the myriad groups of Christians who get together in our congregation in various ways, it's an invitation because he wants to give you something. He wants to give you an assignment. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you confidence. Do you want For instance, confidence that you could be free of what Robert Farrar Capon called 
the large baboon of needing to think well of ourselves, this giant animal in your life that is constantly meddling with you, that's saying you are on trial, you are in competition with everybody, you must defend yourself, you have to have attainments and achievements so that you can have something to point to so that you matter. It's a huge baboon, he says. This need to think well of yourself. That's T.S. Eliot's term. And it doesn't go away unless you start to realize Christ thinks well of me and you spend enough time loitering in his favor that you start to believe it and decide to act as if it's true. And then suddenly, like Paul, you can say, yeah, I've got an impressive resume. Yes, I went to the Ivy Leagues of a religious attainment. Yes, I came from the right pedigreed family as he says here in Philippians. And now, because of my connection to Christ, those things that I used to find honorable, that I used to point to to say, look at what I am, now, to me, that's like boasting in excrement. Yeah, he said it. In trash. In rubbish. Because those things, they don't matter to me anymore. They don't, they don't carry the same weight. They don't do the same thing for me. They don't have the same effect because I have a new confidence. Now I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, not having attainments that I can point to and say, look how muscular I am before you, God. Look how cool I was. Look how many neat tricks I could perform. Instead, I say, look at how God has done so much for me that I might be found righteous in him. You can have a confidence that ruins and gets rid of the baboon in your life of always struggling to think well of yourself. You don't have to worry about that. God thinks well of you. And you got no business hating the self that God thinks well of. Being awful and loathsome to the self that God has adored. So if you want to labor to be brought near, you're going to have to decide, do I want what the promise of that being brought near is? And the promise is that you'll know the Christ for whom you were made. You have to decide, do I want that? If you don't want that, don't bother with the other. It'll just feel like a task. And another part of this laboring to be brought near that the apostle gets... And this is the last part before we close, is this. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you read Paul carefully throughout all his letters, there will be a lot of parts that you probably just skip over, like, I don't like that, I don't know what that means that seems awful and confusing. Never mind. I'm going to skip on. Because he says stuff like that. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We can get on with that. We like power. We like five-hour energies. We like to be caffeinated. We like to triumph over things. We can get on with that. And I want to fellowship with his sufferings. I want to be in participation with his sufferings. And in other places, he says stuff like, I die every day, brothers. We carry around always the death of Jesus in our bodies. 
so that death is at work in us and life might be at work in you. See, here's the thing. For Paul, when he says, to me, to live is Christ, here's how he thinks of Christ. His sufferings and his resurrection. That's one, like a two-step of how he identifies Jesus. And his sufferings aren't just what's happened on the cross. His sufferings are his time in skin before the crucifixion. His time of humiliation, that's his sufferings. His life was a life of suffering. His Twitter bio, they've unearthed it. Archaeologists have found this. His pen to tweet said, I'm a man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs, with nothing about my appearance which would attract people to me. Now, that's kind of weird. And Paul says a lot of times, you know, it's the many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. If we want to reign with him, we'll have to suffer with him. And I want to know the fellowship of participating in his sufferings. Now, what does that mean? I think about that a lot. I don't want to. I don't like it. I don't like suffering, just for the record, if we need to make assertions here. I like things to go smoothly, to stay on an even keel, to be orderly and predictable. And the apostle says, I want to participate in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Well, here's the thing. He recognized something. God is up to making you like Christ. You know that? That's his main goal, making you little Christs. That doesn't mean he wants you to be a 30-year-old Palestinian man with a long beard. He wants you to be somebody who has a Ron Swanson pleasure, like the pleasure of eating a steak and breakfast food and a cigar and a good whiskey, that that's how happy it makes you to follow and obey God. He wants you to be somebody who is so oriented towards God and neighbor that you just don't care about preferencing yourself and you're therefore liberated from the labyrinth of yourself. You're not stuck in you anymore. He wants you to know that freedom. He wants you to be somebody who's so eager to do what is right and what is good. You don't care what it costs you or what's going to happen to you. You just do it. And he knows that once Christ has taken up residence in him, and as he looks at the life of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he learned that so much of Jesus' life was suffering, just like you're already discovering. See, this is terrible news, that the life of Christianity, the life of a Christian is one of suffering than glory. That's terrible news unless you're already suffering. Because when you're When, for instance, you love somebody a lot and they don't love you back. Or you want to have relationships with somebody and and that relationship is ruptured in some way. Or you care so very deeply about a child or a friend and they are self-destructing and you know what's right for them and they won't see it. Makes your stomach hurt. Decimates your heart. Paul says and knows Jesus felt like that a lot. See, he didn't extend the middle finger over the city that was going to clobber him. He wept over them. 
He didn't take a stand for Christianity. He wept over those who refused him. How long I have wanted to gather you like a hen with her chicks. But you were not willing, he says, through tears. And so if you're a Christian, here's the problem. When you have tears, when you have ruptured relationships, when you long for something and it's not happening, you want to see somebody embrace Christ and they don't. You pray. Please let me not have to do this. Please let me not have to do this. Like Jesus and Jesus, uh, and, and Jesus or his father says to you, you're going to go ahead and do it. You don't get what you ask for. You're tempted to say, well, maybe God is against me. Maybe he hates me. Maybe he's, he's, he's turned out the light. He's not taking any more guests. And Paul knows, no, no, no. This is the process. This is what's supposed to happen. You're associated with a suffering Savior who has scars to prove it. You think you won't have scars? That's why Calvin could say anyone who wants to be a Christian should prepare themselves. For a troubled, bothered, disquiet, or unquiet life. Any takers? Except if you're a Christian already, you know that. And it's reassuring to me on the days when my life is unquiet. On the lives when, days when I feel clobbered, when I feel like, why aren't you giving in to this, God? Where are you, God? To realize that Jesus felt the same things. I'm identifying with my Savior. My life is like his. And by not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he was seated at the right hand of God in glory. Paul thinks that in a micro way, death and resurrection happen all the time. And in a macro way, this is what our life is. Suffering, not getting what we want. And having what we don't want yields to resurrection. And it happens in small ways, too. That we spend ourselves on behalf of others and we gain life. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about the difficulties we experience in Troas. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not depend on ourselves, but on Jesus who raises the dead. And he has raised us, and he will continue to raise us as you help us by your prayers. Paul thinks of ministry, loving people, serving people as dying so that the life of Jesus, so that resurrection might happen. So this can sound kind of morbid for Paul. It's in the letter that's joy-soaked. Rejoice in the Lord, he says at the beginning of this. I say it again, it's a safeguard for you. Rejoice! Because what happens is, you realize you're being made like Christ, that God has intentions for you, and he's not stopping. I read a book a while back, something called Ove, O-V-E, I don't know, some of you read it, it's funny, it's wonderful, they made a movie too. And in it, this young man, this Swedish man, was working at a railroad with his father, and he's a young boy, he finds a wallet with money in it, and he returns it to its rightful owner, after some distress internally. And he's walking with his father who says a few words, like a lot of fathers. And he says, Dad, I was really tempted to keep the money. And the father goes, "Mm mm-hmm. 
And he says, but I knew that you wouldn't have kept the money, that you would have returned it to its rightful owner. And his father went, mm-hmm. And never said anything more about it. And if Ove had been the kind of man who thought about such things, he would have realized that was the day that he decided that he wanted to be as little unlike his father as possible. That was the day he decided he wanted to be as little unlike his father as possible. The call to labor to be brought near, the invitation to know God, all of it, the suffering that yields to resurrection won't make any sense unless you realize that God has an intention that you be as little unlike his son as possible. And that as he takes up residence in you, that can become your aspiration too. And so that when you participate in Jesus' sufferings, you can look forward to also participating in his power. That when you find yourself awfully weak, you also know that you have the God who's awfully strong. Don't you know this is a sort of lozenge for resilience? It's emergencies that you can take during the flu season that gets you through your suffering, through that job you hate, through a relationship that's hard, through things about your life that aren't configured the way you want. You realize that God has assigned me And he's making me like his son, learning to yield, learning to trust. And in my weakness, he invites me near, near to him who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He wants us to be as little unlike his son as possible. May that also become our goal as we labor to be brought near to him who has given up all that we might be near as well.